We're going to leave this slide up there because that's the organisation that Ruth works for. I mentioned it on the front cover in the news sheet. I'm sure Ruth would tell us a little bit more about it. So that's a website for you to get in uh, touch uh, with them. But Ruth's going to come and talk to us about our responsibility to steward the earth because it's God's earth and we are put here to manage it. So um, what she's going to do is she's going to speak for a little while. And while she's speaking, if you've got a big question... Write it down because at the end of the time Ruth speaks, we're going to collect up those questions and then we're going to get a chance to put just uh, a few of them uh, to her. So, give another round of applause to Ruth. We're so pleased you're here, Ruth. Thank you. Lovely. Good morning. Oh, it's wonderful to be with you here. Uh, I always like to stand on a soapbox. In fact, when I first arrived, I wondered if that little box was what I was supposed to be standing on for this morning. But it's great to be here. I can remember when this church was little more than a twinkle in Steve's eye. And I can remember him talking very excitedly about the possibility and potential of this, this old building that he'd been given and, and what together Oasis might be able to do with it and so on. And so I've seen it develop over, I don't know, however many years, hundreds of years it feels like, however many years it's been. And so it's really lovely now actually to be standing here and speaking to you and to be a part of you this morning. The, uh, you probably don't know this, but the title that I've been given for this morning is Sustainable Faith. And I want to look at that by telling you about a place that has become very special for us as a family and has become one of our favourite holiday destinations. It's a tiny little island called Bardsey Island. Has anybody heard of it? It's almost unknown. It's this little island a couple of miles off the northwest coast of Wales, off the Llyn Peninsula, it's very, very remote. It's just one and a half miles long by one mile wide. It is just lived on now by one family who farm it. It's an RSPB nature reserve, so the husband farms it and the wife actually is the RSPB warden. And in times gone past, it was a, it was a, a fishing village and a farming community in the Victorian era in the 1800s. And you still have these old Victorian farmhouses that are there. And they are now rented out by the community trust that owns the island. And you can go and stay there and have your holiday there. It's very remote. It's a right old adventure to get there. You have to drive to this little village called Abadaron, stay the night there, and then at some point during the day, Colin, the boatman, will take you over to the island. And whether you get there or not depends on the weather and what it's like. Um, actually, whether you get back at the end of your stay there depends on the weather and you have to keep a track and watch the watch the skies and Colin might pop over every now and then and tell you what the weather's looking like. It's also steeped in a real deep spiritual heritage. It's for almost as long as people know it has had monastic connections. There are the, the ruins of an old Augustinian monastery from the, from the 1300s. There was a, a chap who was a hermit who lived there. 
Its nickname is the Isle of 20,000 Saints because people wanted to be buried there. And tradition said that three visits to Bardsey was the equivalent of one visit to Rome. So it was a very important pilgrimage center. And people wanted to die there and be buried there because they thought that brought them, got them closer to heaven or wherever it was they thought that they were going. So it's, there's a chapel there and there's a lovely rhythm of spirituality that continues to this day. And when you go and stay there, you can join in with the rhythm that is, that is happening. It's somewhere where we've holidayed quite a few times as a family. And as I look back, I've realized that holidaying on Bardsey Island has become quite formational to me and to my thinking, and particularly to my thinking around some of these issues to do with sustainability and faith and, and how I live well in this culture in this consumer globalized culture that we inhabit it's got me thinking firstly around the concept of limits when you are on Bardsey you are very definitely living within limits as I say you stay in these Victorian houses uh, and they are literally still as they would have been in the Victorian times. so they've had no work done on them since there's no electricity there's no hot running water. Most of the water you get from a, a water butt that's outside. There's one cold running, I say running, it sort of dribbles, tap in the kitchen. And you can use that for your cooking, but everything else you need to use the water butt for because all of the water comes, is sustained by a stream that runs through the island. And if it's been a dry period, then there won't be much water there and, and so on. So, so it's very, very basic. I can see by your faces, I'm really selling this as a holiday destination. I can tell you're going to be going back home and looking to book next year. It's about as close to camping as you can get in a house. And to be honest, it's about as close to camping as you'll ever get me doing. But you live within limits. There are no shops there. You have to take all of your food with you. So it's a military operation, getting everything ready. You can imagine going there with a hungry family, uh, lots of outdoor activities. So you've really got a plan. And if you run out of food, well, you run out of food. There's nothing that you can do about it. There's nowhere you can go. So you can imagine that the phrase, don't eat too much of that, it's got to last you for the whole week, is something that my family gets very used to hearing me say. I get, with my husband, I get particularly worried whether I've, we've brought enough alcohol supplies, because that needs to last us for the whole week as well. So there's a limit to how much food, well, how much food you can bring and how much there is once you're there. There's a limit to the water, you have to be very mindful of your water usage. There's a limit to the hours of sunlight. It's amazing how instinctive it is when it gets dark to walk into a room and feel for the light switch. And when I first go on to Bardsey, the first evening or so, I find myself doing this and I have to remember that there's nothing, there isn't anything to turn on. And so you have to remember to do the things that you need light for while there is light available. And after that, there are just candles and calagas lamps and what have you. But it's been really good for me because it has taught me about living within limits. And Bardsey is, feels a million miles away 
from my home situation, where if I run out of something, I can pop to the shops and I've got all the electricity I need, all the hot water I need running out of the tap. But it reminds me that we actually all live on one tiny little island that floats in the sea of this great big universe. And this island that we live in of the earth has its limits. They might not be as stark to us as it would seem when we're on Bardsey, but our island has limits. And there is a challenge for me when I get back onto the mainland and back into normal life with all the things that are there. It's a challenge for me to think through how do I live within the limits that are present within this one little island of the earth that I live on. You may well know it's often said that if everybody in the world lived in the way that we live here in the UK, we would need somewhere between three to three and a half planets in order to sustain that sort of lifestyle. Well, of course, we don't have three, three and a half planets, do we? We only have the one. And there is a responsibility that's on each one of us to be thinking about how much energy we use, to be thinking about our food, where that has come from, how resource intensive that's been, to be thinking about our water, to be thinking about how we travel, to be thinking about our waste, as in W-A-S-T-E, not this sort of waste. Although if you're thinking well about food, that might help that as well. And waste becomes an important thing on Bardsey too, because you can't throw anything away. You have to take everything back with you and then dispose of it on the mainland. So it makes me think all the time, how much stuff am I bringing with me? How much, how much packaging am I creating? And I can see the waste, the rubbish that I'm creating, because it all comes back with me. So Bardsey gets me thinking about limits and how I can live on this little island of the earth. It also encourages me to think through how I spend my time. So time is a funny thing when you're on Bardsey. Like I said, it's this tiny little island. There's no electricity. So there's none of the usual things that, that you would... It hasn't got any of the things that you would normally spend your time, your leisure time doing, maybe. You know, there's, there's no computer games. There's no internet. There's no mobile phone signal. There's no television. You can't watch anything. You can't do anything. And when I tell people about it, one of the first questions they ask me is, what do you do all week? People just can't imagine what on earth do you do all week in a tiny little space where there is nothing to do? Well, you would be surprised by just how busy life gets on Bardsey Island. To begin with, things take a lot longer to do. Your daily routine, you have to boil the water and the daily wash and all of that takes longer. As we get through the week and the bread that I've bought runs out and some of the food runs out, I have to start making my own bread and making, you know, everything takes longer. But it is funny how time just takes on a, a different, a different feel. As I lose the regular routine and the busyness that I have at home. And it forces me to ask myself, how do I use time when I'm at home? Because I know that I live a ridiculously busy life, as lots of us do, and I can use time badly. 
As we're thinking about sustainability and sustainable faith, I also want to ask myself, how is my faith sustainable in consumer society, in our globalized world, in this society that puts so much pressure on us to be working more, to be earning more money, to be buying more things, to be consuming more stuff. And it creates this this society that feels very busy. The word that I would use for that is crowded. A lot of us have the feeling that we're living very crowded lives as we try to juggle all the different demands that this society places on us. And as we think about a sustainable faith, one of the best things that we can do is take time to stop. Maybe you might like to keep a a time diary for a little while. You could take a month where you write down everything that you do and how long you spend on it and then get together with a friend or maybe in your small group or however you want to do it and have a look. What are you spending your time on? And what values does that reflect of your life? Part of sustainability isn't just about thinking around resource use and energy efficiency and so on. I also think it's about developing a resilience in our own lives that then enables us to live differently. And part of that resilience, I think, comes through being aware of our time and how we use it. Building in some regular rhythms and patterns into our lives. I've been discovering silence recently. It's an amazing thing. I never knew it could be so powerful. I once heard someone, or I once read, someone said that living a life without silence is like trying to read a book with no spaces between the words. And we live in a society that that shouts at us and bombards us with messages all the time. Consume more, buy more, look more beautiful have the latest stuff, do this, do that. And one of the ways by which we can combat those messages is by taking time to be still and quiet and silent and allowing God to feed some different messages into our hearts and into our minds around his values and his priorities. And then finally, the the third thing that Bard Z has really made me think about is my connection with the wider natural world. So when I'm on Bardsey, I know that I have a a much greater connection with, with with the wider natural world, with nature, than I do when I'm at home. It's right there. It's all around me. Often it it ends up coming into the house through one way or another. But we're, we're so much more connected. We, every day we get out and we swim with the seals in the, the little harbour there, which is an amazing experience. Because there's the RSPB reserve, we join in some of their activities and we help with bird ringing and looking at what they're doing. They have these incredible birds called Manx Shearwater that uh, you go out at midnight to watch them coming in, this eerie noise. It's uh, totally freaked our girls out when we first went there. It's quite a, a weird thing. All sorts of different ways by which we are aware of and we connect with nature when we're on Bardsey. Even just stopping to notice the bees that absolutely fill 
the wild bushes that are there. What about when I get home? Well, it's not quite the same as I rush through life. And I know that I need to find ways of connecting with nature. Why? Well, because very biblically, it's how we've been created. The Hebrew of Adam, the Hebrew for earth is Adama. Literally, each one of us here, we are earth creatures. We are earthy ones. We have been created in order to connect and have that connection with nature. And where we don't have it, that is to our peril. And there's so much research that's coming out from secular societies showing the impact that comes to us on our emotional well-being and our, our health, our physical health, where we don't have that connection. Lots of studies of children now showing that they, they know what a Dalek is, but they don't know a wasp and so on. Other studies showing that um, <clears throat> patients who've had an operation recover better if they're in a room where they can see a tree than if they're in a room that has no view. And I wonder about us, as we think about sustainability, and as I begin to draw this to, bit to a close, sustainability isn't a, a kind of sterile theoretical concept. Sustain, sustainability comes about where we have connection and where we have love. Where we know things, then we care about them, don't we? And where we care about them, then we will take action. The opposite of love actually isn't hate, it's apathy, apathy, literally without feeling. So I want to encourage you to think through how you can be connecting with nature around you. Maybe it's just the really little thing, maybe it's just taking the time to stop, to be aware as you're walking along. As I walked here, I walked past a jasmine bush and I stopped for a few seconds and just smelt the jasmine and enjoyed that. Maybe it's about getting out and about. It doesn't have to be getting into some wild wilderness of Snowdonia. It can be somewhere very local. One of the things that Arosha does is take wasteland and transform it into beautiful community areas. In Southall, we've got a community park called Woolfields. Maybe you'd like to get along and come and join in one of the work days there. Very multi Racial, very multi-ethnic, all sorts of people come along and get, and get involved in it from the local community. Getting out, getting dirty, getting connected, joining in with other people and with the wider natural world. So sustainable faith for me has got this two, two parts to it. It's about sustainability, but it's also about developing a faith that can sustain life in our consumer society and of course the two are connected because consumerism teaches us to turn in on ourselves but actually the gospel teaches us to turn outwards and to live in ways that take care of other people and take care of this common home that we share with so many diverse creatures and as we do that, as we turn our focus outwards towards sustainability and live lives that are sustainable, then as disciples of Jesus, we will live well within our consumer society. Okay, I'm going to pause it there and give you a few moments to jot down any questions you might have.
Great. So, um, thanks, uh, thanks for that, Ruth. Ruth's going to go and sit down there. Now, yeah, wait. So, now's the chance. I'm going to ask the guys at the back to put on a little bit of music. Now's the chance to talk to one another or scribble down your question, come up with one between you, and then we're going to find a way of everybody handing those in, and Ruth's going to address them uh, briefly. We're going to give her three minutes per question, and then there's, uh, then there's a cutoff point. So, why don't you do that right now? There's some pens if you need them that Jimmy's bringing around. But get writing. Great. As, as we uh, continue to collect them in, I'm uh, going to invite uh, Ruth back. So here comes uh, the first one. By the time you get back home from Bardsey, uh, you are desperate for comforts. Are you desperate for comforts? How long does the experience uh, there impact your lifestyle before you begin taking things for granted again? Is it like going to an event and living off the high for a little while before you end up back down to earth? So I suppose the question is, how do we sustain, we get it that, our little world is a tiny island, really, and it doesn't have all the resources for us all to continue living this way. We're just stacking up problems for the future. But it's so hard to remember that, isn't it? Yeah. Okay, to answer the immediate question, um, our desire for luxury, certainly amongst the girls, our two teenage girls, uh, kicks in pretty fast. And we, there's a particular garden centre we stop off on on our drive from Aberdaron all the way back down to Chichester. And there's always a great cry of relief that there's a toilet that flushes. And Oh, because I didn't say it's still got the outside toilets that the Victorians have. I didn't add that to the temptations and attraction of the island. Um, and there's always a, which one of us is going to jump into the shower first. But when we get home, because we've been looking forward to that. But I have to say... Although, in, on, in one sense, on that surface level, we are looked very much looking forward to our home comforts. I, I do know that going there has changed the way that we, that we view these things and has made us much more aware of the, just of how we live and of needing to look after the resources that we've got. In terms of how to build these sorts of things actually into our lives... What I've discovered is that it's a, it's a process of turning a desire into a discipline, into a habit. So I might want to live in a particular way, and that might have an element of inconvenience and needing, needing to, to reduce a little bit and, and have less. In order to do that, I need to practice it as a discipline. Let me give an example. Many years ago, I used to drive everywhere. And then I started to realize the damaging impacts of my travel. So I wanted to start cycling. To begin with, I didn't like it. I cycled out of a sense of duty and discipline because I felt that was what I needed to do. Well, when I'd been doing that for a while, the cycling then then became a habit and it became part of my life. And I now actually much prefer to cycle somewhere than to drive. And I feel a bit resentful if for some reason I have to drive. So it's turn, turning that desire into a discipline, into a habit. Great. That's really good. So, um, rightly or wrongly, our economy is currently based on consumption. 
How do we transition from this to a more sustainable one? Three minutes. <laughs> that is one of the, uh, the million-dollar questions, if no pun intended. That is probably the, the hardest question to ask. And I'm very well aware that the sort of lifestyle that, that I advocate and that I'm trying to live actually needs to lead to a reframing of our whole economic system. And I'm not an economist, so I can't give you the answer in three minutes. But what I would do is to point you towards some people who are economists and do have more of the answer than I do. There's some really good stuff coming out of the Ellen MacArthur Foundation and issues around a steady-state economy and a circular economy. And I, whoever asked that question, I would just recommend that you have a look at some of the work that is being done from that and the NEF, the New Economics Foundation. Just before we go on to the next question, I'm aware that I'm giving the impression that a lot of this, because I talked about living within limits, is about reducing and, and so on. And in one sense, that's the case. But actually, it's a, also about saying yes to, to a whole different way of living that actually is joyful and relationship-affirming. So it's not just about saying no to everything and putting on an extra dumper and living on mung beans. It's about living a life that is really affirmative of relationships and those sorts of values and discovering the ability to say yes to a whole lot more. Yes, so there's this uh, good question here It's on that theme, Ruth. It says, how do we promote a message of sustainability that encourages people rather than making us all feel just judged and excluded by others as lefties. <laughs> I, I can't really say anything about the lefty side. That's, you know, I'm glad I'm standing on your left, Steve, because that makes me feel a lot better. But I think that's part of what, I'm, if I should have waited for that question... Because for me, the sort of life that me and many others are advocating actually is a much better life. So when we think about the pressures that consumerism places on us, we know that we have ended up in a society that is, is in all sorts of sickness and, and ill health because of our high levels of consumption. We're living in a society where increasing numbers of us are on medication, increasing numbers of us are facing mental illness, increasing numbers of us are having trouble sleeping at night, are facing pressures and so on. And if that relates to any of you here, none of that is pointing the finger. That is simply symptomatic of the sort of society that we live in because we are consuming more than we are create, have been created to make, to, to do. So actually living a life that places more emphasis on relationships, more emphasis on, on time, on having time for each other, for the wider natural world, for God, actually will lead to a much better and more joyful life. And that's the sort of thing we need to be, well, just living. So um, here's, a, here's a good question related to that. It says, my work, and I believe my calling, someone said, isn't local. I travel a lot. How can I be pragmatic about doing this rather than just feeling guilty? Because I think there are all things that... We all have things that we can do. So I would always encourage people to focus on what you can do, focus on the changes that you can make, focus on those steps that you can take, 
rather, in one sense, than, than worrying about the things that you can't do. Which isn't an excuse then not to think about those areas, because it may well be that in, within that travel, there might be ways by which you can travel a little differently. There might be ways by which you can do things differently. If you're flying a lot, you could consider offsetting through climate stewards, which is a, a really good, really reputable offsetting organisation. So it's not so still think, still challenge yourself in those areas where you think you can't make a difference, but then also focus on those areas where you can. And my motto is many little steps in the right direction. If I, standing here, if I wanted to get over there, that would be a huge jump and I couldn't do it. But if I just do the one thing and then the next thing and then the next thing, at some point I look back and I see, oh look, look how far I've come. So focus on what you can do and don't be discouraged about what you can't. So what if there's a clash between the choice uh, of, of what is good for the earth and... On the other hand, a choice yeah. of what is good for people. Because sometimes those two things yeah. are on the, on the other side. So if it's a choice of what's good for the earth or what's good for people, because that's what it pragmatically comes down to a mm. lot of the time, what should Christians do? Pragmatically, most of the time it doesn't come down to that. Pragmatically, most of the time you find that actually what is good for people is also what's good for the earth. And what's good for the earth is what's good for people. And where you don't have that, where there is a clash between those two, then that will be a symptom of a, a deeper systemic problem that is creating that, that dichotomy. So then I would encourage that you look deeper mm. at what the systemic issue is. Theologically, we believe in the fall and we know that we live in a fallen world. And so I do think there will come times where our choices are limited and we need to we will be forced to to choose between two two wrong choices do you that think sense? that that's the real problem that we just not actually got far enough down the pipe into the big hole yet for us to really wake up in what well it has as do you know it's is it more is it like we're all sailing along on the titanic and uh, we're rearranging the deck chairs because none of us have worked out that it's sinking yet. In terms of the world or just yeah, the economy? The, just the way that our, the sustainability of our planet. Yeah. Is it just that I, we're all kind of coasting along? I'm, I'm not trying to put words in your mouth. But I mean... Yeah. Um, in my heart of hearts, I do think we are in a huge amount of problems. And it's good to to look at these things here and to be reminded about them because for most of us we live very comfortable convenient lives we don't live lives where we're actually really that aware of what's going on around us if I can just tell a little story quickly a friend of mine works for Tear Fund and he was out in Bangladesh recently looking at the impacts of rising sea levels and he went to visit a, a lady with her children and over the years, they've been, they live on the coast. Over the years, they've been gradually, each year they have to move, she has to move her hut back. And she's got to the point where she can't move back anymore because the seas are rising in front of her and behind her are the prawn farms and there's nowhere for her to go. And my friend went and visited her and had a cup of tea with her, sat with her and her kids at her dining room table and he sat there up to his knees in water. And that was how she was living. 
for her, the reality of climate change is very, very stark. And she knows that something has to change because she lives directly in it every day. Whereas for us, it's very easy to live through life and kind of ignore what's happening. So if the Thames barrier failed and this became uh, not Waterloo but Waterside... We, we, might, we might start thinking and acting seriously. Yeah. Yes. So then, last question. What are the main things that human beings can do right now uh, to stop damaging the planet? What can we change? The biggest thing that we can change, the main difference we can make in our individual lives, is to eat less meat. Hmm. Because our meat, our high meat and dairy consumption diet, I didn't quite say that right, um, is the biggest contributor to our environmental and actually many of our social problems as well. And, you know, environment and social, it's all linked up. That isn't to say that we all necessarily need to go vegetarian. So I'm not standing here pushing vegetarianism. But it is saying that we should be reducing our meat intake considerably, really turning our diets on their head so that we eat meat a little bit if we still want to eat meat, but our diets are predominantly vegetable and grain-based. And if I can see some of your faces when I say that, <laughs> if that just seems absolutely unbelievable to you and you couldn't possibly consider it, again, take those little steps. Why don't you set yourself the challenge, that discipline, of having one day a week where you don't eat any meat? And that will start that, that process and begin to get you thinking around other um, dishes that you can do and, you know, recipes and so on. When that becomes normal, when that discipline has become a habit, then extend it to two days a week and to three days a week and so on until you've turned it upside down. That's on an individual level. Eat less meat. Great, Ruth. One last question in a minute. But first of all, I'd like you all to, if you've not met her already, meet Sally. Sally, do come up here. Give Sally a round of applause. <laughs> Sally, if you use that mic, we'll go. Sally uh, is our farm manager, uh, works across a road. So you were talking about the space in Southall. We've got, um, we've got a Saturday coming up soon, haven't we? We do. Um, we have a very special day this coming Saturday, which is one of our open days. Um, our, it's Mind, Body and Soil Day. <laughs> so um, everybody can come and connect with the land and have that wonderful feeling of nature that you were talking about um, and share some good food and learn how to cook some good food, how to recognise some food and pick some food maybe. Um, we also have a very lovely woman who teaches people in mindfulness, um, which when we started on the farm, there was me and somebody else, which we'd managed to do for 20 minutes, listening to sirens and various London noises around us. But it really, really does give you that space. So what you were saying is music to my ears and hopefully um, we can, you know, you're very welcome to come to the farm. We've we developed it quite a lot at the moment, so there are spaces and times when anyone can come to just get in touch. And if you want to come and just sit and look at flowers, so that's for a moment. Ne next Saturday. In the and the um, the information about that, the details of that run in the news sheet. And we've also developed this thing on the farm, which uh, which we call farming therapy. We won't talk about it now, but it's exactly what Ruth's talking about. We have kids from uh, I think last month about six hundred kids. Uh, yeah, about 600 kids from not just our schools, but schools around, kids with behavioural issues, etc., etc. The therapy of sitting 
and finding peace, uh, which they can't find in a classroom. So Sally does all of this work all of the time. So do visit the farm and find out more from Sally a bit later on. Thank you, Sally. That's brilliant. So this uh, big question comes up. Um, well, you kind of, in one sense, uh, answered this. Um, lots of people have said the same thing. There's tons of them that say, just give us one single thing. Uh, what's the one practical change I can make this week? Is it about energy? Is it about food? Is it about travel? Is it about waste? What's the one thing we could all do? Okay, well, I've answered that in terms of the one thing. If you want to extend it beyond that, four areas to focus on are the food we eat, the energy we use, the things we throw away, and the travel, the way that we get around. So you could think for yourself, one, choose for yourself one thing from each of those areas, food, travel, energy, and waste. That's brilliant, Ruth. There were, um, out, on your way out through that way, at the uh, info desk, Ruth's got lots of books there. This, this is your latest book, isn't it? It's called Just Living. It's a brilliant book. It really is a brilliant book. Um, it's very challenging, so it's there. But there are also uh, these and various others. So if you're in a small group, for instance, this one is called Wholehearted, Reflections on Worship, Justice and the Faithfulness of God from the book of Malachi. And it's some Bible studies for small groups. And this one uh, is about the environment. And it's some Bible studies for small groups. There are others as well, aren't there? I thought you were going to tell us about the other. Aren't there those things you're putting in your loo as well? Oh, yeah, no, don't. Um, yeah, just if you want to look more at, the, um, at that what can I actually do, it sounds like there's a lot of people asking that question, have a look at L is for lifestyle, which is that practical answer. It goes through the alphabet, takes an issue for each letter, so B is for bananas and looks at global trade, W is for water, H is for HIV. So it's got a whole mixture of different issues. And it's, it's what I'd call a, a kind of toilet book, depending on how long you might sit there for. Each of the chapters are very short. You can read it, get some information about it. And then the chapters finish with two or three action points that you can go away and then do something about it. Can I give a final plug for You Greg's can give <laughs> another final plug. That'd Thank be brilliant. <laughs> My husband, Greg, is um, a pioneer in the ethical jewellery industry, and he pioneered fair trade gold. He has brought out his autobiography called Making Trouble, Fighting for Fair Trade Jewellery. He was, you'd like this actually, as an educationalist. He was kicked out of school when he was 15, and as he was kicked out, his form teacher said to him, Valerio, the only thing you'll ever be any good at is making trouble. So make sure you make trouble for all the right reasons. And it took him a long while doing lots of other naughty things until finally God got hold of him and he's made trouble in the jewellery industry. It's a really, really good story. It's a great story and Greg is a great person and he has made a lot of trouble in lots of places. I've known Greg for a long time and lots of trouble in the church and I've spent many a good evening drinking a bottle of wine with Greg. He is a troublemaker and you should read his book. It's brilliant. It, he's, his story is extraordinary. Um, so Ruth... Um, do say hi to Greg from us all and another round of applause for Ruth. Thank you.